Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. We are grateful for the students of this class and grateful for uh, Zach for your ministry in this place and for those of you who were adult leaders in this process. None of us comes to this point on our own, so we thank you for all who've participated in that. Uh, Before we read, um, a reminder, we're in a series uh, where I'm uh, preparing messages in response to questions that the congregation has asked, gave you an opportunity to say, hey, we'd like to hear a message about this, a sermon about this. And so today, and I'll say more about it in a minute, uh, the, the sermon title is, um, should we talk about this in church, the politics of Jesus? Uh, if you just saw that and it made your heart, uh, made your blood pressure spike, uh, consider yourself prepared for the next two weeks' messages, which will be on innocent suffering. Um, and so we'll uh, continue to respond to questions uh, that, that you have lifted up. And today our text is the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel. It's Jesus' opening words in, in the gospel of Luke as we come to it. Join me first in a word of prayer. Gracious God, not our words but yours are the words of life. So by your Spirit, O God, we pray that you would enable us as we come again to these ancient words to hear your voice, that your word might come to life in us. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Luke 4, beginning with verse 16, listen to this. When Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, This scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a severe famine over all the land. 
Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, led him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. So Jesus went into the synagogue, as was his custom. They gave him the scroll. He read the inspiring words from the prophet Isaiah. Everyone loved it. He should have stopped there. But then he told them what he thought that scripture meant for them in their day. In other words, he preached. And they tried to kill him. Now, admittedly, not every sermon's a good sermon. And it may be my own personal bias, but it seems to me that killing the preacher is extreme. Now, no doubt, I, I'm, I'm not foolish. I, I, I know over the years I have said things from time to time that have caused your, your ire to raise, caused your brow to furrow. It's not my intent. I get no joy when that happens. But the truth about our faith is when it's honest, it speaks to real issues of real life and that's always risky. And maybe you have thought about killing the preacher, and I just didn't know about it. For this series, a good number of you submitted questions. Tom, would you preach on this or that social issue? We do that from time to time. Tom, would you preach about Ukraine? Would you preach about this? Would you preach about that? But I also got questions Tom, would you please not preach about those things? Would you please not talk about those social issues? Because when that happens in worship, it feels a bit political to me, and that's not why I come to church. In worship, we should stick to the Bible. This is an important conversation. It's a really rich conversation, an important one for us to reflect on together. What are we supposed to talk about in church? What does our faith require of us as followers of Christ as we engage the larger world around us? Well, what is the intersection, if there is one, between the spiritual and moral teachings of our Lord and the political world in which we inescapably find ourselves? Don't get nervous. Don't get nervous, it's okay. First, let me say this about you. We've had some challenging conversations in this room over the years about race, climate, the unending gun violence, about the inclusion of the LGBTQ neighbors, 
And I have, in those conversations, found you to be generous and gracious. What I mean is you give me room to reflect on the ancient text, and if I understand the text, to share the wisdom that I believe they offer for us in our own day. And if I make that case with some humility and hopefully a measure of clarity, even if we're not on the same page, we agree to hear each other. That happens less and less in our day. It certainly doesn't happen in every church. I do not take it for granted, your generosity and graciousness. Today I'm not speaking on any particular social issue, but rather I'm asking this. What are the boundaries for our conversations in church? Where does faith fall silent? This is true. We are all political beings. I have my own politics. You have your own politics. And so, two brief statements. One, it is not the calling of the preacher to proclaim his or her politic, personal politics, and baptize that as Christian faith. That's not the calling of the preacher to proclaim his or her personal politics and baptize that as Christian faith. That is, Christian faith is too big for that. But a second thing, it is not the calling of the Christian to allow our particular political view to determine what can and should be talked about in Christian faith. Our politics are not to set boundaries of what the Lordship of Jesus Christ addresses, just because our faith may not align with our politics from time to time. Those two statements. But then it gets a little more complex. I'm going to take one more step. Can I take one more step? You with me? One more step? On the macro level, Politics is the community's decisions of how we will live with our neighbors. The macro level, politics is the decisions and policies we establish of how we will live with one another, how we will live with our neighbors. That's the macro work of politics. It may sound familiar because the ministry of Jesus at the macro level is guidance on how we will live with our neighbor. It is guidance on how we will be in community. It is not the same as politics. But Christian faith and politics share the same conversation. Am I making sense? They do not play the same role but they are in the same conversation. Listen to Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind, to set the captives free, and to let the oppressed be liberated, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, God's promised day. That's social justice. It's how we are with our neighbors. Now, I, I've, I, pick, I pick this text because 
They loved it when he read the scripture. They hated it when he preached. I thought you could relate to that. But I could have picked most any moment in the life of Jesus. I could have picked most any text from the prophetic material. I could have read the Ten Commandments. I could have read the Great Commandment. All of it, all of it speaks to how we are to engage our neighbor, how we relate to our neighbor. And Jesus gave his life to shape how we are in community, to shape how we are with one another. The cornerstone of our faith is we're called to love God and to love our neighbor. And in this way, Jesus was political, not partisan, not partisan, but political. There are partisan politicians who claim to carry the banner of faith, but often they make faith too small. Jesus was not partisan, but he was concerned about the health of our communal life. He was concerned about justice. That's a moral, spiritual concern. So I've told you this before 150 times. I was, I was in college. I got, I got a job as a choir director in a Baptist church in South Carolina. Still with me, Baptist church in South Carolina. Those people were very comfortable about talking about their own conversion, and they would describe it as the moment when Jesus came into their heart. As I've grown in my own faith, I, I think of conversion differently in a number of ways. One is I don't think we're converted once. I think the journey of faith is one where change and growth comes all the time. There are conversions all along the way. But more significantly, to speak of Jesus coming into my heart feels a little too restrictive, too private. I don't think Jesus just comes into our hearts. I think he comes into our relationships. I think the love of God shows up in how we are with each other, how we treat one another. He comes into our relationships. Now, how we treat one another, that's the political concern of Jesus. And really, it's the concern of the whole Bible. From Genesis, creation story, all the way to Revelation, it's the concern of the whole Bible, how we are with one another. It's political. It's not partisan. But both faith and politics share the same conversation. So, to restate, there is a misstep. There's a misstep that occurs when, when the pulpit reduces the spiritual truth of the gospel to mere policy and politic. There's also a misstep that occurs when our politics place barriers, limitations on what the gospel speaks to and speaks about. Here's one example, just one example. For the entire generation of my ministry, our church has been in one long conversation about the inclusion of gay and lesbian persons. We spent a whole generation arguing, debating, sometimes fighting over this issue. And, and over that period of theological and spiritual debate, issues related to that have from time to time become 
political. One party or another has attached their wagon to one side or another of that issue. When that happens and it becomes political, it does not erase the underlying spiritual concern at play. It still remains a spiritual issue and therefore must be talked about. So I shared this with you too, and all of our officers I've shared this with. When I was in seminary, I had a conversion moment. I was taking a class on American church history. I was sent to the library to read, to read theological statements from 150 years earlier, written using language nobody used anymore. And, and I stumbled across a theological treatise written by a guy named James Henley Thornwell, leading theologian in the Presbyterian Church in the 1860s. And Thornwell expressed with reason and eloquence and conviction how a follower of Jesus Christ could also own slaves. I read through this, and he raised an interesting question. Slavery, you know this, was the predominant political issue of the 1860s. It was also an extraordinary system of injustice. So what should the church say about that in the 1860s? Thornwell's counsel was don't say anything. Don't talk about it at all. Why? Because the existence of the institution of slavery was an economic and political decision, and therefore the church should remain mute. See nothing about it. His actual language is it's beyond our sphere. It's beyond the limits of Christian talk. He was wrong about that. He was not only wrong because in his own mind he worked out a way to be a follower of Jesus and a slave owner. Not only that, but even more so, he was wrong in suggesting that God somehow did not care about the injustice of slavery and therefore the church could remain silent. Now, it's an extreme example, but Thornwell's argument lingers in our cultural air. You've heard it. The church talked about feelings or personal morality, but not social justice. God's not interested in that stuff. But our faith says otherwise and always has. And actually, your ministry says otherwise and always has. Every week, every week we say we are living toward God's promised day as it is in Jesus' text. We call our living toward God's promised day. One of the ways, one of the things we, one of the ways we speak of that is mission. Mission is when you spend mornings teaching inner city children to read and to build some self confidence and to trust. There's a place for them in this world. You're living toward a better day. Mission is when we collect food for our food pantry. You're living toward a better day. Mission is when we support the work of Thelma's Kitchen or we partner with artists helping homeless. We're living toward a better way and a better day. But mission is not just our acts of service in these matters. Our faith also calls us to ask the question, why are they in need? Why can't children read at grade level? Why 
Or there are Americans shooting Americans every single week. Why? Why are people who work all week long get to the end of the week and still don't have the resources to purchase their own food? Why is white nationalism so culturally accepted so widely in this country? And why? Why should the children of gay and lesbian parents be taught that they should somehow be ashamed of their own parents? These are all political issues right now. And they are all spiritual issues right now. And the church's job is not to shape the policy, but it is to hold up the value of loving neighbor. It is to hold up the value of pursuing justice. It is to hold up the promise that there is a better day that we every day should labor to encounter and to ignore the questions that the faith raises is not a faithful option. We welcomed these young students of our confirmation class today. We're proud of you. We're grateful for you. And we hope you will make us a better church. And it is also my hope that by the time you sit on the front pew by choice, <laughs> by the time you become the leaders of this church, that some of the struggles and quagmires and difficulties that we face as human society, that some of that will be better, that some of that will be of distant history, and that we would have found a more just and kind and gracious way to be with one another. I, I listened to this, and I'm finished. I listened to an interview with a 19-year-old young woman named Asina. She's a Uyghur, uh, part of the ethnic minority that's persecuted in China. You've heard about that. Her life was difficult and filled with fear. Her family worried every day they were going to be sent away. But her father finagled a way to get that family out and to come to the United States. And with very good English and with her teenage exuberance, she described her experience of stepping off of an airplane and into her first American airport. And she described it like this. She said, I stepped out of the airplane and I saw Starbucks. <laughs> Starbucks looked amazing, smelled amazing. It smelled expensive. It smelled fancy. I ordered coffee. I don't like coffee. But that coffee tasted so good, it tasted upper class. I feel like I'm rich now. I was so happy, and I thought I could go back to my friends at school, and I could tell them I had Starbucks, and they would be so jealous. But then she said, but that's impossible. 
I'll have Starbucks again. I might have Starbucks every day, but my friends will never do that. I was not happy anymore because whenever I have good things, the thought in my mind was they should have them too. Why can't they have Starbucks? This young girl is Muslim, but I think she understands the politics of Jesus. He had dreams that our communities could be just. He had dreams that our communities could be healthy. He had dreams that we could be with one another and our choices would be shaped by a love of neighbor. He called for the love of neighbor to shape every choice and he gave his life for that promised day. It's a day when there's an equity in human living. It's not about having what someone else has. It's about everyone having what they need. Or as he said, the blind see. And the poor have good news brought to them. The captives are set free. The oppressed are released. I think that's exactly what you would want. And if I understand not just the text, but if I understand all of them, if we're going to draw closer to that dream, to that promised day, then we're going to have to talk about these things in church. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.